You're lucky. You got both of us here, man. How's it going? <laughs> okay. How are you? Uh, we're, we're doing tremendous, Dwyer. Man, I tell you what, we can't thank you enough for joining us. This is just a tremendous pleasure for us. And it just so happened that it worked out that we're sitting here the week of the 30th anniversary of Field of Dreams. How about that? Well, things like this happen to me. I lead a, ma- I lead a magical life because of that movie. <laughs> Clearly you do, sir. That's pretty awesome. Um, you know, as we look at this and you've done so... In fact, it's funny. I was just watching The Cutting Edge the other day and I was like, there's Dwyer right there. I forgot about you in that movie. It's... <laughs> It's a great role. You were like the rich boyfriend that she was just sort of supposed to be with, right? And uh, Sweeney, D.B. Sweeney, was the, the the rebel that stole her away from you. <laughs> That's right. I, I describe myself as asshole boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> That's here in the credits, actually. Um, so, <laughs> Dwyer, you know, it's funny because I was just, um, as we kind of get into this, and I, this is just, you know, free-flowing and conversational. It's all good here, man. So we were, I was just watching the video from... It's hard to believe it's been five years now since you had the big reunion uh, in Dyersville with Timothy Buzzfield, with, uh, you know, Kevin Costner, and you did that interview with Bob Costas. How cool was that? I mean, it's hard to believe it's been five years now since you guys did that. Yeah, yeah, this movie just keeps rolling along, and yeah, it does seem hard to believe it. Yeah, I just I just wrote the book five years ago, and, and here it is, you know, a fifth anniversary of that already, so anyway. Yeah, talk about the book. I was just checking it out. It's called If You Build It. It's available on your website, uh, DwyerBrown.com. Talk about this book. I, you, know, the, you can check out the first 30 pages for free there on the site, which is awesome. So much good praise for this, and it kind of chronicles you know, your acting career, kind of how it led to this moment and, and, and your um, inclusion in this film. Just kind of talk about the book and how it came about and kind of what your plans were for it and what the reception's been like. Well... You know, to be honest about it, for the for the first 25 years that the movie was out, I was kind of embarrassed about, you know, people making a fuss over me because I had such a small part in the movie, you know. I, I really feel like James Earl and Kevin and, and Burt Lancaster and Timothy and Amy did all this hard work to open everybody's heart, and then, you know, I just take off my catcher's mask and, and walk right in. But, um, you know, I, I'd been sort of waiting. I'd hoped that Kevin or, or the, the director, Phil Robinson, would write a book about the movie because it was such a fascinating shoot and difficult and just magical and all kinds of things and uh nobody ever did it and after 25 years i'm thinking well geez i guess i have to write this book so <laughs> um so i i started with you know over the past 25 years people have come up to me you know in grocery stores and you know it starts out usually like hey did i go to high school with you and i'm like no no i, I, I I'm from Ohio. I didn't go to high school out here. And then to be, oh my God, you're that guy. You're, you're, you're the dad. You're the dad. And, you know, invariably they start crying usually. You know, they, they start telling me wow. about their dads. And so here I am standing in a tire store in an airport and, you know, some big guy is weeping. And, and you know, um, I, you know, I, I just found myself, you know, reaching out to these people and I end up hugging them and then we, you know, go our separate ways. But it happened to me so many times and people, seemed very, uh, they were determined to tell me how that movie changed their lives. You know, I had people tell me that they changed careers, that, you know, they hadn't spoken to their dad for 20 years, and that movie came out, and they went to see it together, and they just, you know, got rid of their animosity towards each other, and, uh, you know, people who figured out that their person that they thought was their uncle was really their dad, and, like, I mean, all because of this crazy movie. So I started writing those uh, episodes down that, that I collected over the years that were, you know, just happened between me and this other person. And I would be like walking away from it, shaking my head. And I, I'd write down a few notes that, you know, when I decided to write the book, I started with those. And that of course made me think about my dad. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of people don't know that, that my father died 30 days before I went to go shoot that movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was cast in the movie, he was perfectly healthy. And then I decided to stop in Ohio on my way to Iowa. And, um, you know, he happened to be going to the hospital the day before. And I got to see him and talk to him. And then he died that night. So it was pretty weird, as you can imagine, for me to leave my dad's funeral and then go play a dead father walking out of the cornfield to have a, a last catch with their son. So, you know, it made the whole movie a much more bizarre <laughs> experience than it already was. Um, and, you know, there were so many problems shooting the movie with, uh, you know, the corn wouldn't grow because there was a drought going on, which, you know, ordinarily farmers don't sweat that stuff. The, the rain will come eventually. They know that. But <laughs> we have to shoot a movie and can't imagine how stupid Shoeless Joe would have looked walking out of knee-high corn. <laughs> so so uh, they had to do all kinds of machinations to get it to grow, and they took an insurance policy for $3 million with Lloyds of London on the corn, and they, they got special permission to irrigate it so it would grow, and they also ordered 300,000 uh, fake uh, corn stalks made out of silk from, from Hong Kong, they were kind of on hold if they if they couldn't get the corn to rise. You imagine how stupid that movie would have looked with, you know, artificial flowers in the background. But um, <laughs> anyway, it, 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 it you know magically in, in that heat when they did start irrigating the corn, it, it grew. I mean, in fact, it grew like crazy. It got so tall; it was like eight feet tall. So then, when they wanted to shoot the corn stuff, you couldn't even see Kevin in the corner because because it was two feet over his head. So they had to build a platform between the rows of corn so that Kevin could be seen, you know, inspecting the corn. And, and uh, you know, they had, to, they had to shoot it that way. So, you know, there was just crazy difficulty after, after other difficulty in, in shooting of the movie. So, um, anyway, I, that's how I sort of started with the book. I, I talk about the difficulty shooting it, the people who talk to me about it, and, and, and I end up talking, uh, you know, somewhat about my dad. And... Um, Anyway, it's been it's been really fun. I, I, I the book is uh, you know it was a great uh, I don't know I, I'm really proud of it and uh, it's gotten you know it's almost got straight five star reviews on Amazon so I think uh, people like it as well. Absolutely, and Dwyer, you mentioned your dad there. Uh, you've said that that did have an effect on uh, how you went in and played the scene. Looking back now, here we are thirty years later. How do you feel that impacted or changed the way that you approached that final scene? Well, you know what was kind of funny is obviously, you know, I was my dad died unexpectedly. I, it was out of the blue, you know, so I wasn't prepared for it. And I thought, you know, I was aware, as you know, you are that oh gosh, I have to go shoot this movie in in, in thirty days. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get through that scene, you know. So that's what I was sort of thinking. The hardest thing was going to be I'd have to kind of hold myself together. And well, the strange thing was, you know, my dad, who was a pretty stoic farm sort of guy who, you know, just never expressed himself, never, never said he loved me or hugged me or, you know, he, I couldn't get over after he died that he was just the happiest, that he was like Peter Pan, like he was literally just flying around everywhere, flying out to to Saturn and, and flying back and just laughing. And, you know, it was just a very strange feeling because, you know, that wasn't my dad, but that was, you know, completely unexpected. So then suddenly I have the opposite problem. Like, I think, well, maybe I can't even find any emotions in this scene because 
you know, my own dad's dead, and it feels like he's happier than he's ever been. So it was it was very strange. What was great was I really did feel him in the cornfield there with, you know, the, the ghost players who, you know, who were there. And I think everybody who was on the cast and crew, you know, I'd worked on movies for 30 years, uh, you know, have worked on them for 35 years. And usually, you know, sets are pretty jocular. Everybody's teasing each other, joking around. It's pretty loud. But when we went out to shoot that particular scene out in that cornfield, you know, it would just, it would get very quiet. You know, here we are in this, you know, cornfield and getting ready to shoot the scene. And I think everybody sort of had this feeling like, you know, like their dads were there or, you know, that this movie was going to be something bigger than, than just, you know, any other scene in the movie. And, um, you know, it would get very quiet and then we'd shoot the scene and then, and then we'd be done and, and, you know, go back the next day to, to shoot something else. And, um, but it was, um, it was pretty interesting for, for all those reasons, you know, that there was a, there's a hallowed feeling about that field. I still is to this day. And, um, I think it's because so many people have brought their fathers and sons and memories and even, you know, even their parents ashes and stuff and spread them on the field. So it, it has a kind of a magical feel to this day. It, it does. I've, I've been there myself. Um, it's unbelievable. And, um, you know, the one thing about it, a lot, uh, some people may not realize is that, uh, that final scene, which is so impactful, one of the most, emotionally ridden scenes and in film history but uh original test audiences didn't didn't quite understand the payoff between you and and kevin costner there they they had to uh add in that where he calls you dad i mean first off what do you think that the addition of him saying hey dad was uh was necessary do you do you prefer that and you know really when you when you look back at it is is it do you feel that um that each that uh, ray and john each knew that each other that were their, uh, you know, father and son, or do you feel like that, you know, how do you feel like that dynamic was between the two? Like at what point did they know? Yeah. I, I mean, Kevin, when Kevin and I talked about it, when we were working on the scene together, I think we both felt that it was, that we both knew, but, but like when, uh, Moonlight Graham steps off the field and then becomes Doc Graham, I think, to me, part of what the great tension in that scene is that both of us realize we have this crazy, impossible opportunity to reconcile with each other, and that anything that we might do that would spoil that balance might send me back into the cornfield, might turn me into an old man, might, you know, like, you know, when you're dealing with magic, you never know quite what's what's making it happen, so... To me, that's partially what made that scene so so delicate and tense was I think both of us were like, oh, gosh, I'd love to say, Dad, I love you, or whatever it is, but what if that's not allowed? You know, what if that changes everything? So that kind of gave it that tiptoeing on eggshells kind of uh, feeling about it. For me, I was sad to see that they had to put Dad in there. Um hmm. You know, to me, it's like, you know, geez, if you don't get it by them, then... But I, I guess the way the director, Phil, described it to me is people thought that uh, that Ray, Kevin, was being cruel by not saying Dad, you know, by not, not acknowledging, you know. They weren't as clear, I guess, that I knew who he was. The only 
indication I give, I think, is a little glance I throw to him when he says, this is my, and then, you know, he's introducing me to uh, Karen and um, and um, Amy Madigan's character. So, um, anyway, I, 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 wish, I wish they'd left it the way it is, but I agree with Phil that if it was misunderstood by anybody and thought of as being kind of cruel, then that certainly would spoil the movie. So, I've, I've made my peace with it. Well, Dwyer, uh, we hear that Kevin kind of felt under pressure in that last scene to not drop any of the catchers. Uh, you guys had a helicopter uh, for the overhead views that was kind of another challenge and distracting uh, to go along with that pressure. Uh, did, did you feel the same pressure, if it's true, that you guys kind of had to film that last scene in one take at Twilight? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was definitely, it was just funny. It was one of those things that never occurred to me. You know, I played catch with my brother a half billion times in our backyard. You never sit around there thinking like, oh, I hope I don't drop it, you know, like. But suddenly, because by the time the, the, the helicopter's warming up out there, I'm thinking like, oh my God, like, I mean, that catcher's mitt they gave me was a solid brick. It's like a giant bagel. It had no, you couldn't even tell when the ball hit it. So <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't without reason that I was worried, but. I, I mean, you know, I, I would be very surprised if Kevin was very worried. He's, he's a he's a very good ball player. And, I, you know, I, I played some when I was a kid. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a particularly good fielder, but it's just so funny when, you know, it's probably, a, I don't know, it's a million-dollar shot, that last scene with the helicopter and a guy with a camera on his shoulder hanging out of it. And there was three, those, those lights in the background, that was actually 3,000 farmers in 1,500 cars that they'd gotten to volunteer to do that. I mean, it wasn't CGI back then. Uh, you know, they could have done that in 10 minutes with <laughs> these days with uh, CGI. But back then, all those people were actually sitting in their cars, and the director was broadcasting on the local AM radio station uh, the directions to the, you know, he'd say, start, okay, everybody start your cars. Okay, we're rolling, helicopter taking off. Okay, you guys, cars, move. And so these guys were hearing it on their AM radio, and they would start driving. I mean, it was it was very, very involved, to say the least. And, and and we did think that we were only going to get one take of it, so that certainly added to the uh, to the tension uh, of shooting it. Can you just talk about uh, your character, uh, John Kinsella, what kind of you saw on the script uh, for him as far as kind of his place in this cosmos, in this kind of magical world? Obviously, this is about Kevin Costner, his character's redemption and uh, looking back to his past and finding peace and in, in, in his relationship with his father. Obviously, there's a voice that kind of guides this whole thing. What do you think John's role is in, in this? Do you believe that he's just sort of like thrust into this universe? As uh, obviously, they mentioned briefly that you're, you know, uh, someone that, you know, wanted to be a baseball player, that nothing ever came of it. All of a sudden, he's sort of in this baseball game. Just kind of talk about what you saw in the script. For John and where you think he fits kind of in this universe well um, I mean I I tried to play John pretty straightforward you know the the movie is you know fantastical enough but I mean what was kind of beautiful to me was you know what if you know you died and suddenly you were in the, your favorite place in the world, you know, the way some people actually imagine heaven to be, which is, I think, you know, really where his genuine question comes out. Is this heaven? I mean, like, am I dead and this is what's happening to me? Or, you know, it's... So I, I tried to be as sincere as I could be about that, given the circumstances. I grew up in Amish country on a farm in Ohio, 
And one of the images that I had in my mind was as if you were an Amish child who suddenly got to go to the county fair, you know, and all the bright lights and the crazy food and the games you could play and the rides you could go on, you know, things that you'd never been allowed to do in, in, in your life. So that was one of the images that I tried to get behind. And my feeling always was that, you know, John and Ray sort of want to say, I love you to each other. And, but the words are not in the script. So they have to say it with all the other words. Uh, you catch a good game, you know, uh, you know, is there a heaven? And, so to me, that's another reason that that scene has such tension is because the the text doesn't match completely with the subtext, which I think is always interesting to watch in in, in a in a production of, of anything. So I keep trying to say, you know, I, I love you, son. I I forgive you for saying whatever you said to me, and you know, and and you know, plus the idea that my son was responsible for building this field that gave me a chance to come back is, is kind of amazing. I mean, I don't know if you guys have kids, but when you start dealing with, you know, your kids doing something sure. incredible, you get a kind of thrill out of it that you can't take if you, if you've done something great, you know? And I think the same way with your dad, uh, two words from him, good job or nice try or whatever the heck it is, is, is worth a thousand words from, from somebody else. And because my father had just died, I wasn't yet a father myself, but I certainly, you know, had nephews and I, I got a sense of what that must be like. It's a very interesting thing to kind of be between those things, between being a father and being a son or being both at the same time. That, that crazy, unspoken, very profound, deep relationship goes both ways and it's it rarely goes that way with words it's usually that's why a catch i think is so profound in the movie too is you could sit and play catch with your dad for an hour at sunset and maybe not say anything or talk about the weather or somebody's new car or what's for dinner or something and it has exponentially more meaning when the relationship is rife with potential misunderstandings and things that you know your dad just can't say. So you you take those those little I love you's out of nice catch and throw it as hard as you can at me, you know, or whatever we say when we're playing catch with somebody. So anyway, I I think I think those things are what John and Ray th those were the the, the raw materials they had to kind of patch up their relationship after, you know, 20 years or whatever it was that, uh, that John had been dead. Well, I want to get your thoughts kind of on the voice. Uh, I know it's kind of left up to every individual's own perspective, but uh, I kind of feel like uh, this is uh, John trying to kind of get a message to his son, Ray, uh, to build this and go the distance uh, so they that they can kind of reunite and come together. I kind of want to get your thoughts, what you think the voice is, is that John trying to get a message to Ray? Well, they didn't ask me to voice that, that role, that, 
unseen roles of the voice. Uh, and, you know, uh, Phil Robinson knows who it was. I suppose a few sound engineers. But he's never told me. He's never told me or told anybody that I know of. Um, I I guess in my mind, I, I wouldn't think it's John. I, I wouldn't have thought it was me saying, if you build it, he will come. Just because that's a little... I mean, so it's a little on the nose, and it's a little, um, I think it's more more entitled than John Fields. I don't think he would be on the other realm and saying, hey, make some place where I can meet you. I, I like the way it's, you know, the way I imagined it was that, you know, it, it was this sort of Shoeless Joe magic. And because Shoeless Joe was my hero, John's hero, it's... It has that profound meaning for me that my son, who who rejected my hero, Shoeless Joe, would then build a field to have him come and play catch. And the surprise at the end is that I get to come too. So I, I sort of like that better as a as an interpretation. Of course, it's all in in my mind. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I that, that's the way I look at it. You know, and the voice. I gosh, I don't know why the voice. I think. I mean, what's so great about it is, you know, you guys had a crazy voice that said you should start a, a podcast, <laughs> you know, about nostalgia. You know, somehow that came to you. It wasn't probably in a cornfield, and maybe as clearly as, as it came to, to Ray, but that, that's how all creative endeavors start. Somebody says, hey, we should have this, or hey, I think I could build this, or whatever. And, you know, who, where does that voice come from? You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's accumulation of everything in the universe and everywhere you've ever been and every person you've ever met, you know, pushed you a little bit farther that direction, you know, some, some obviously more than others, but, you know, to me, that's, that's the creative force of the universe. And, you know, you can call it God or, or the universe or, or energy or whatever, but, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that's satisfying about the movie, I think is because, if you go on the journey with Ray to first to build the cornfield, then to, you know, drive to, to, uh, Boston or, um, uh, you know, to get, um, uh, Terrence Mann and then to Chisholm to find, Shula, you know, uh, Moonlight Graham or, or Doc Graham, it, it pays off more at the end because you've invested in it. You've, you've gone on the journey with him, you know, and I always feel like, you know, a lot of people don't like that movie. I mean, Rolling Stone called it the worst movie of 1989. So I, I know it, it, it's it's bordering on corny for sure. I mean, I, I watch it sometimes and there's moments that I just roll my eyes. But the I, I, I think it's, it's magical. And, 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 and there's people who, it's, it's sort of like Mark, uh, Tim, Tim Busfield's character. Some, some people don't see the players, you know. If you can't see the players out in the field, of course you think everybody's crazy and it's the corniest movie ever. But fortunately, there's a lot of people, certainly over the last 30 years, who have uh, seen the players and uh, go on the ride and, um, you know, get the payoff at the end. Yeah, what a wonderful, uh, wonderful um, overarching themes and things that are at play here make it so multi-layered. And I tell you, it's just been... Such a pleasure to, to talk about this with you today, Dwyer. You're, I, the scene at the end is one of the most gently acted scenes 
I've ever seen. And you add to that James Horner's score behind it, and you've got just a oh, com- completely, isn't it? Uh, one of my favorite scores in film history, and uh, your yeah. scene there it was highlighted by that. I tell you what, we're gonna have to call you back when we don't do our House and House Two, the Second Story podcast, because <laughs> brother, those are coming up, and I'm actually a bigger fan of House Two than House One. One of the one of the only oh, movie yeah. sequels that outdoes the original. You were in both. Well. <laughs> good, good, yes, and yeah, yeah. I think I, I, in that way, I'm a trivia question myself. What, what actor was in, you know, in both House and House Two? <laughs> and you know, just to throw that in, I did an episode of House MD. So I'm just like, uh, I'm a real estate guy. Well. Hey, you, Dwyer, you've done so many things, your career, and, you, you know, this is, you know, every, it, uh, actors will always say, musicians will say the same thing, if I can make one hit, if I have one song that people remember, if I'm in one moment, then that is worth a lifetime, and that's um, certainly um, this moment in this film, and it will never die, and it's something I'm so glad you've embraced and written this book. Uh, if you build it, which is available on your website, uh, Dwyer Brown. Dot com. I tell you what, we can't thank you enough. This has been such a pleasure, and uh, all the best, my friend. We'll be in touch for sure, and uh, anything you ever have to promote, anything you're doing, you got our email. Never hesitate, my friend. Well, thank you. And yeah, We went deep on this, man. I don't know if I've ever gotten so deep on an uh, interview, so uh, good on you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's funny, we talked with Jerry Levine, who played Styles in Teen Wolf, and he said the same thing. He's like, I never thought I would be breaking down the character of Styles uh, from Teen Wolf like this, and I, th- I took that as a compliment. I was like, yeah, you know, there's there's people with enough time on their hands to really think about this stuff, and uh, <laughs> that's how it happened. So, hey, I just have one question for you guys. You bet. Hey, Clint and Noah? Yeah. Want to have, have a catch? <laughs> I love it, Dwyer. Anytime, my friend. Let's do it. Um, you're the best, man. Thank you for that, and uh, thank you for everything yeah. that you've done for us. We'll uh, we'll definitely send you send you everything when we get it all get it all together. We'll send you this, and um, we just appreciate everything you've done, man. Thank you. There you go. My pleasure.